It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In early 1865, Union General John Newton, who was in charge of Union forces in and around Florida, came to believe that what with most of Florida's military-age male white population being deployed to other theaters of the war, Florida State Capital of Tallahassee was very vulnerable. And so in early March, Newton sent forces up from Key West that landed approximately a thousand men at St. Mark's on the Gulf Coast of the Panhandle with the plan that they would basically march northward and seize Tallahassee. Newton's force consisted of U.S. Colored Infantry and U.S. Florida Cavalry, as it was called, the latter consisting of Floridians who favored the Union cause, and these were supplemented with some Navy men who went ashore as well. Cobbled together to oppose them was a relatively small group, no more than 700 at its peak to face at least a thousand Union troops. And these Confederates consisted mostly of local volunteers, including, by the way, cadets from West Florida Seminary, which was the ancestor of today's Florida State University, and which had been turned into a military college known as the Florida Military and Collegiate Institute at the start of the war. This motley Confederate force also contained among them a group of older men from the nearby town of Quincy, who had formed themselves into a militia unit they called the Quincy Greys. These forces successfully destroyed all of the nearby bridges over the St. Mark's River, which was the main geographic barrier between where the Union forces landed and Tallahassee. The only one they couldn't take out was something called the Natural Bridge, which is a natural land bridge that is formed where there's a spot where the St. Mark's River temporarily flows underground through the limestone. And the Confederates, knowing that this was the only other place that the Union could try to cross this river, decided to take up a strong defensive position on the far side of the Natural Bridge on the other side of the St. Mark's River. And they knew that the Union forces would have to try to cross there, and they also knew that it could function as a very effective bottleneck to allow them to somewhat nullify the potential of the larger numbers of Union troops to be very effective. And sure enough, the Union forces showed up at Natural Bridge and tried to fight their way across it. The U.S. colored troops attacked very bravely a total of five times over the course of the day. And this is March 6, 1865. But they were unable to take the well-prepared Confederate defenses. And then late in the day, some Confederate reinforcements arrived. And at that point, General Newton put his men in a defensive stance. And sure enough, the Confederates launched a counterattack. The Confederates succeeded in taking some of the Union's front lines, but then fell under heavy artillery fire, which stopped their attack long enough for the Union forces to begin to retreat, which they ultimately did all the way back down to the coast 
to be evacuated back onto the naval ships from which they had come. And the Union suffered nearly 150 casualties in this battle, around 20 of whom were killed. The Confederates, on the other hand, suffered fewer than 30 casualties, only three of whom were killed. So it actually, in proportion to the numbers engaged, was a massive one-sided Confederate victory. Though this battle, the Battle of Natural Bridge as it came to be called, had no real impact on the overall course of the war, it still is often characterized as the last significant Confederate victory of the conflict. Of course, using the word significant a bit generously in terms of numbers of soldiers involved in casualties and all that, I mean, it's a rounding error compared to some of the battles that took place up in places like Virginia and Tennessee and even Georgia. And the main result of this battle was that Tallahassee, Florida, ended up being the only Confederate state capital east of the Mississippi River that was not captured by Union forces actually during the war, but was instead only occupied after the war was over. Ironically, some of the Union survivors of the Battle of Natural Bridge were among those who came in to occupy Tallahassee when the war was over. By the way, during the Civil War, Florida's governor was a man named John Milton, and two of his sons, one of whom was only 15 years old at the time, actually fought in the Battle of Natural Bridge, and as far as I know, neither were among the few Confederate casualties at the battle. Governor Milton himself, though, would ultimately be one of the last casualties of the war. He actually committed suicide by shooting himself on April 1st, 1865, which was just eight days before Lee would surrender to Grant at Appomattox, and obviously less than one month after the Confederates successfully fended off the Union incursion towards Tallahassee at Natural Bridge. In his last official message as Florida's governor, Milton said that the Yankees, quote, have developed a character so odious that death would be preferable to reunion with them, end quote. And he's the only high-up Confederate political leader that I'm aware of who actually committed suicide. The only other fairly prominent Southerner I'm aware of who committed suicide is Edmund Ruffin, who had been kind of an activist and writer in favor of secession for years. He was one of what were known as the Fire Eaters, and he committed suicide in June of 1865, but as far as I'm aware, he never actually held any kind of significant political office in the Confederacy. So Florida has yet another honor. Again, to my knowledge, the only Confederate governor who committed suicide as a result of the war going against the South.
everybody, this is CJ, and wow, can you really believe it, my Dangerous History amigos? We're finally closing in on the end of this particular White Whale series. After all the blood, toil, tears, and sweat on my part, and the pure listening pleasure and ecstasy on yours. I'm assuming, anyway. I'm hoping, yes. Um, anyway, welcome to DHP episode 167, Endgame, The Not-So-Civil War, Part 13. And this title is probably pretty self-explanatory. As far as I know, the actual term Endgame comes originally from chess, which I dabble in a little bit, but don't claim to be any kind of a master at. But basically, the Endgame is when there aren't that many pieces left on the board, and you're just trying to close in and clinch ultimate victory. And in some cases, both sides may be low on pieces, and in other scenarios, maybe only one side is low on pieces. And in that latter scenario, which clearly describes the last months of the American Civil War, you know, it's kind of clear which side is ultimately going to win. It's just a matter of exactly how they'll do it and how long it's going to take and how long the losing side is going to be able to essentially delay the inevitable. So that's what we're dealing with here. I am going to have one more regular DHP episode in this series that's going to deal with the aftermath, the legacies, the interpretations, the meaning of this war in kind of a big picture wrap up. So that's still to come. But this episode is going to cover the last of the military operations and so on. Before we jump back into that story, though, I do have a few important announcements and you don't want to skip over this. If you normally do at this point in the show, stay tuned. You might want to know some of this stuff. First off, Patreon and Amazon thank yous are now going to be put at the end of Dangerous History Podcast episodes, along with the new show's outro that you'll hear for the first time on this episode. So thanks to all excellent individuals, by the way, who've stepped up to support the show since last episode. Your names will be mentioned, but towards the end. And thanks to everyone who sent in donations in any form or who signed up to be a new supporter of the show or who increased their pledge, who are already supporters via Patreon, but upped their their contribution amount over the past few weeks in response to kind of my little distress signal in last episode's intro. A bunch of people did step up to help me out, and hopefully some more folks will uh, continue to do so as I deal with some kind of hard times in the near to medium term, most likely it's looking like. And again, for the sake of time, I won't repeat myself entirely, but just so you know, if you've not yet listened to last episode, and you really probably ought to do that before listening to this one, for a variety of reasons, I'm kind of in a tight spot for at least the next few months. So please consider supporting or donating to the show in any way you can if you value what I do here and you're able to do so, because I really can use it right now uh, even more than, than usual. So, of course, obviously, if you're in your own tight spot, please keep your own money and maybe contribute to the DHP in the future when you're through your own hard times. But anyway. Also, one more important announcement. Next month, which from when I'm recording this is September, I'm recording this in August, next month being September. I will be one of the presenters at the 2018 Free Coast Festival in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And this event takes place the weekend of September 7th through the 9th, 2018. And I will be getting in there Friday, kind of probably late afternoon or early evening. And I'll be there all day Saturday, and then I'll be there part of the day Sunday, and I'm leaving Sunday. And I will be speaking 
on Saturday the 8th at 11 a.m. on the topic of autodidacts in history. So if you're able to make it, I hope to see you there. I'd love to meet some DHP listeners in person, as always. So those announcements out of the way, now on to the rest of the show. So the first thing I wanted to do was to cover what the hell happened to John Bell Hood and his army of Tennessee after they abandoned Atlanta to William Tecumseh Sherman. Well, you may recall that Hood, who, of course, was still stupidly super aggressive, wanted to maneuver around Sherman's forces up towards Chattanooga and attack their supply lines, and he had all sorts of delusions that his army might still somehow be able to defeat Sherman's much bigger, much better supplied force. But in reality, Hood himself had largely already destroyed much of the capability of his army due to all of his reckless offensives during the Atlanta campaign. I mean, the most they might have been able to accomplish was to irritate and harass some of Sherman's forces and logistics. But Hood seems to have been totally delusional and thought he might be able to pull off something similar to what Stonewall Jackson had done in the Shenandoah Valley in 1862 namely using speed and maneuver and surprise in order to defeat a much larger collection of forces in detail. But the thing was, Hood wasn't anywhere near as savvy as Jackson. He had nowhere near the strategic and tactical finesse that Jackson had, and Hood's army was in much, much worse shape than Jackson's forces had been in way back in the second year of the war. Nonetheless, Hood later wrote of this phase of his command, quote, The situation presented an occasion for one of those interesting and beautiful moves upon the chessboard of the war, to perform which I had often desired an opportunity. I had beheld with admiration the noble deeds and grand results achieved by the noble Jackson in similar maneuvers. End quote. So now you're going to get to see what happens when someone who can barely scratch their way through a half-assed, smells-like-teen-spirit tries to be Jimi Hendrix. Except Hood wouldn't even really get a chance to do much to the bulk of Sherman's army, since, as we covered in a previous installment in this series, Sherman was just going to take the bulk of his forces and cut it loose from its supply lines and march down southeastward to Savannah in his famous march to the sea that we covered last time, basically marching away from Hood's army rather than being baited into following it. Supposedly, when Sherman heard that Hood was moving northwestward 
to try and lure him that way, Sherman said that if Hood wanted to go that way, he, Sherman, would give him rations to do so. Sherman put Union General George Thomas in charge of the remaining Union forces in Tennessee, which still massively outnumbered Hood's forces, and therefore he's in charge of dealing with Hood now that Hood's headed back that way. Thomas had at least 60,000 well-equipped troops against Hood's battered and much worse-equipped force of less than 40,000, many of whom were barefoot or wearing shoes so bad that they might as well have been barefoot. And of course, their morale was pretty terrible at this point in Hood's army. Nonetheless, Hood believed that somehow, magically, I guess, he'd be able to steamroll through Thomas's army in Tennessee, get up into Kentucky, where he thought he'd be able to get at least 20,000 new recruits, and then he thought he'd take his army from there up to help Robert E. Lee in Virginia, which... When you look at the capabilities, the logistics, the shape that Hood's army was in, the shape that just everything about the Confederate war effort was in, I mean, this is just insanity. This is magical thinking. So in November of 1864, Hood moved up into Tennessee and tried to attack a part of the Union forces under General John Schofield that was separated off temporarily from the rest of Thomas's army. But the Union forces were able to pull back to Franklin, a little way south of Nashville, which is where the rest of Thomas's forces were up in Nashville. They were able to get to Franklin in time before Hood's forces could attack them in any major way. And once at Franklin, Schofield's men entrenched and fortified. Hood, characteristically, blamed his subordinates and even blamed his predecessor, Joseph Johnston, for his failure to get at Schofield's forces while they were still kind of out in the open and vulnerable. On the evening of November 30th, 1864, Hood's Army of Tennessee launched a frontal attack on Schofield's Army of the Ohio in what became known as the Battle of Franklin. The forces were actually roughly evenly matched in numbers, a little under 30,000 apiece. And, of course, the Union forces were much better equipped, had more artillery, had better morale, and were fighting defensively in trenches. Some of Hood's subordinates objected to his orders to attack, given all of these facts. Nathan Bedford Forrest, for example, who had much more tactical savvy than Hood did, asked to be given a combined force to try to make some sort of flanking maneuver, but... Hood was determined on a frontal attack regardless. And Hood actually seems to have thought that launching a frontal attack would improve his men's morale, rather than it being a suicidal disaster that would destroy what was left of their morale. Patrick Claiborne was one of Hood's subordinate generals, and was one of the most interesting Confederate generals of the war, in my opinion. He was actually born in Ireland and immigrated to the U.S. before the Civil War, where he settled in Arkansas. He was actually pretty much anti-slavery, but he sided with the South in the Civil War out of kind of affection for the Southern people, among whom he'd lived for a lot of years. So, interesting guy. And he was one of very few in the Confederacy who very early on advocated and proposed a plan to enroll slaves in the Confederate Army by offering them freedom for military service. This is something for which there was precedent in the American Revolutionary War and in colonial wars going back even before that. Now, that got virtually no traction of any significance when he proposed that, but nonetheless, it is kind of an interesting uh, thing. And Claiborne was leading one of the Confederate divisions 
of Hood's army that would end up spearheading this assault. Whether he thought it was a good idea or not, Claiborne was determined to try and make the attack work, and his division actually would briefly break through the Union lines, at which point the battle turned into another bloodbath of brutal close quarters and even hand-to-hand fighting going on for hours, after which Union counterattacks would push the Confederates back and Hood would ultimately halt the attack. It was a complete disaster for Hood's army. They lost around 6,000 casualties. Remember, that counts killed, wounded, missing, and captured altogether. And those 6,000 casualties were about three times what the Union casualties at Franklin were. And among the Confederates who were killed at Franklin was General Patrick Claiborne. A Union officer wrote of what he saw in the aftermath of an artillery barrage that was fired at relatively close range against attacking Confederates at Franklin. Quote, The mangled bodies of the dead rebels were piled up as high as the mouth of the embrasure, and the gunners said that repeatedly, when the lanyard was pulled, the embrasure was filled with men crowding forward to get in, who were literally blown from the cannon. Captain Baldwin of this battery has stated that as he stood by one of his guns, watching the effect of its fire, he could hear the smashing of the bones when the missiles tore their way through the dense ranks of the approaching rebels. And a Confederate who lived through the battle described the scene as, his words, a grand holocaust of death. During the night after the fighting, Schofield would pull the Army of the Ohio back to reunite with Thomas's force up in Nashville, even though some of his subordinates thought that because of how badly the battle had gone for the Confederates, they really didn't have a need to do that. But basically, what ends up happening is, by any rational measure, Hood had lost this battle pretty badly suffering three times as many casualties in an army that was not in good shape to begin with. But Nonetheless, it was the Union forces who were the ones who were the first to pull back from the scene. In his memoirs, written years after the war, Hood justified his insane offensive tactics by saying, In truth, our army was in that condition which rendered it more judicious that men should face a decisive issue rather than retreat. In other words, rather than renounce the honor of their cause without having made a last and manful effort to help lift up the sinking fortunes of the Confederacy, end quote. All I can say is, wow. Historian James McPherson sums up the magnitude of Hood's losses at Franklin with the following, quote, Hood lost more men killed at Franklin than Grant at Cold Harbor or McClellan in all of the seven days. A dozen Confederate generals fell at Franklin, six of them killed, including Claiborne and a fire-eating South Carolinian by the name of States Rights Gist. What a name that is, by the way. Back to McPherson, no fewer than 54 Southern regimental commanders, half of the total, were casualties. Having proved, even to Hood's satisfaction, that they would assault breastworks, the Army of Tennessee had shattered itself beyond the possibility of ever doing so again. Southerners were appalled by the news from Franklin of fearful loss and no results, end quote. And historians Williamson Murray and Wayne Sia write this of the battle, quote, In a few hours of suicidal attacks, Hood all but wrecked his army. 
In his memoirs, astonishingly dishonest even by the standards of the genre, he claimed he had been close to victory. Nothing could have been further from the truth. In a matter of three hours, the Army of Tennessee had lost 6,200 men out of the approximately 16,000 who participated in the attack. The fact that Schofield pulled out during the night to join up with Thomas at Nashville allowed Hood to report the Battle of Franklin as a victory. Bragg and Davis did not discover the extent of Hood's losses at Franklin until mid-January, end quote. So what a guy General Hood is, he reports this as a victory, something that, like, as far as I know, no historian since then has ever seen as a Confederate victory, and that he basically tried to conceal how bad it had, it had gone. After the battle, Hood marched his army towards Nashville and expected to get some reinforcements on the way, but they never showed up. And instead, Hood's forces dug in on some hills south of Nashville and waited for Thomas to attack them. Ulysses Grant and Secretary of War Stanton were getting annoyed with how long Thomas was waiting to attack Hood's forces, but Thomas was actually methodically preparing, and meanwhile Hood's army was suffering two weeks in nasty winter weather outside of Nashville. Grant was actually leaving for Nashville to potentially relieve Thomas of command when Thomas finally launched his attack on Hood. Basically, Grant's thinking was that if he made it to Nashville and Thomas hadn't attacked yet by the time he arrived, he'd relieve him. But if Thomas had attacked by the time he arrived, he'd go ahead and leave him in charge. James McPherson writes that Thomas's attack in what became known as the Battle of Nashville in mid-December of 1864 was, quote, like Joe Lewis's second fight with Max Schmeling, a devastating knockout that almost annihilated the adversary, end quote. On December 15th, Thomas launched a feint attack on Hood's right, followed by a major assault on Hood's left, and the plan worked nearly perfectly. It booted the Confederates out of their positions, and Hood pulled his forces back several miles to try to regroup. The next day, the Union forces repeated the same maneuver, and though it took fighting for much of the day to do so, they ultimately succeeded in smashing Hood's army yet again. This time, it pretty much turned into a rout, and Hood's forces, pursued and attacked by Union cavalry, retreated southward. Two weeks later, they reached Tupelo, Mississippi, down to only around 20,000 badly battered and worn-out men. Nearly half the troops were lost to one thing or another. And one has to imagine, aside from wounds and killed and so on, that there must have been more than a few desertions as well at this point. On Friday, the 13th of January, 1865, Hood resigned from the command of the broken leftover remnant of his army. Hood then went to Richmond for a while, then at the very end of the war got himself transferred out to the so-called Trans-Mississippi Theater out west, and basically got transferred there just in time for those parts of the war to shut down as well. And after the war, he would eventually write self-serving memoirs in which he tried to blame everybody else, and especially Joseph Johnston, for all of his many failures. A corporal who had actually served under him saw it differently, saying, quote, As a soldier, Hood was brave, good, noble, and gallant, and fought with the ferociousness of the wounded tiger, and with the everlasting grit of the bulldog. But as a general, he was a failure in every particular. End quote. 
And to some extent, this actually sounds a bit like what Robert E. Lee's assessment of Hood would have predicted back when Hood was first given command of the Army of Tennessee. Lee had basically said he's courageous, but was doubtful of the other qualities necessary, something like that you may recall. And historians Williamson Murray and Wayne Sia do a great job summarizing the Confederacy's overall situation at the start of 1865. Quote, By now, in a rational world, the South's leaders would have recognized the Confederacy had no chance of surviving, given the strategic and military situation. Meade's Army of the Potomac had Lee's Army of Northern Virginia in a death grip in its siege of Petersburg. Sherman's armies had devastated Georgia in their advance to Savannah. Union forces under Thomas and Schofield had smashed Hood's Army of Tennessee in the battles of Franklin and Nashville. Sheridan's cavalry and infantry had ravaged the Shenandoah Valley from the Potomac to its southern extremities. Slavery was dead. Desertion was rife. Inflation had destroyed the last vestiges of a modern economy. What few railroads remained were in the last stages of collapse. End quote. And it was at this point, when pretty much all hope was lost, that the Confederates adopted an emancipation policy. And again, there had been some Southern voices throughout the war that had urged some sort of program for emancipating slaves in order to increase the likelihood of Confederate victory. For example, in August of 1863, the Jackson, Mississippian newspaper published an editorial calling slavery a possible, quote, barrier to our independence, end quote, and saying that, quote, if it is found in the way, if it proves an insurmountable object to the achievement of our liberty and separate nationality, away with it, let it perish. We must make up our minds to one solemn duty, the first duty of the patriot, and that is to save ourselves from the rapacious North, whatever the cost. End quote. So there were voices that were willing to say that they wanted independence more than they wanted to protect slavery, and that they prefer independence without slavery to clinging to slavery but ultimately losing the war. However, until very late in the war, those were a minority of voices who were not in any significant positions of power within the Confederate government. But by early 1865, more and more Southerners were turning to this out of desperation. For example, Robert E. Lee himself, in January of 1865, wrote, quote, We must decide whether slavery shall be extinguished by our enemies and the slaves be used against us, or use them ourselves at the risk of the effects which may be produced upon our social institutions. My own opinion is that we should employ them without delay. I believe that with proper regulations, they can be made efficient soldiers. The best means of securing the efficiency and fidelity of this auxiliary force would be to accompany the measure with a well-digested plan of gradual and general emancipation. End quote. So what Lee's suggesting is that there be a program right away to offer slaves' freedom in return for military service for the Confederacy, and then also to begin putting in place some sort of a gradual plan to ultimately free all the slaves. Now, had Robert E. Lee, with all the respect that he had, all the admiration throughout the South, had he pushed this thing a couple years earlier, it might have made a difference. To push it in early 1865, when it's already a lost cause, doesn't help that much. 
And you have to ask yourself why. Why were so many Confederate leaders unwilling to seriously push this option until their backs were completely against the wall and arguably they had already lost the war anyway? Why were they unwilling to bring it on the table until they had already pretty much lost the war? Could it be that they actually did really value slavery and did really want to preserve it? Seems like the most rational explanation to me. So in March of 1865, literally in what would become the last few weeks of the war in the serious sense of the war, the Confederate Congress narrowly, even then narrowly passed, and Davis did sign a plan to try to recruit 300 slaves into the Confederate army. Davis also sent word to the governments of Britain and France that the Confederacy would adopt some sort of abolition policy in return for those governments recognizing the Confederate government. But again, this is far too late to matter to the outcome of the war. Perhaps if they'd done these things in 1863, or maybe even early 1864, this might have mattered. But by the early months of 1865, it's just over for the Confederacy. No one wants to back them at this point. And again, I can't help but point out, for those who argue that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery and that defending slavery was not a major motivation for the Confederates and what they did, then how come they refused to seriously consider these types of measures until they were completely desperate and were about like 98 and five-sevenths of the way to being crushed? If they really cared more about independence than about slavery, they could have instituted even a partial abolition plan early on and gotten at least some of the male slaves to bolster the Confederate forces in return for their freedom, and also by even putting in place a gradual emancipation plan. They would have removed the biggest barrier to European recognition and support for the Southern cause, which was, of course, slavery, which... Britain and France had already abolished within their jurisdictions and was probably the biggest reason why, for example, the British government ultimately decided not to help the Confederacy in any major way beyond just, you know, being involved with some blockade running. And there actually were Confederate leaders at the time who criticized this policy and pointed out the contradictions between what the Confederacy had been doing this whole time and then trying to pull this rabbit out of the hat towards the end. So, for example, a guy named Howell Cobb, who was a politician turned military officer from Georgia, said, quote, The moment you resort to Negro soldiers, your white soldiers will be lost to you. The day you make soldiers of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution. If slaves make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. End quote. Now I want to talk a bit about the so-called Hampton Roads Conference, which took place in early February, February 3rd, to be exact, of 1865. What happened was President Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward met with a Confederate commission headed by Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens aboard a steamboat called the River Queen at Hampton Roads, Virginia. 
Stevens, who'd very much become a dissident within the Davis administration, had been advocating for some sort of negotiations to try to end the war since, believe it or not, 1863. That early, he'd become disillusioned with the Confederate government and also become disillusioned and pessimistic about the course of the war. Now, Davis had no real intention of seeking peace or any terms short of Confederate victory and independence, and he had no expectation or intention of anything coming out of this meeting. But he sent Stevens and two other Confederate leaders whom he knew were favorable to peace, basically in order to discredit them and to discredit the entire peace faction within the Confederacy. In other words, on the Confederate side, the conference was intended by Davis to be non-productive, regardless of what the Union leaders proposed. And of course, they had good reason to believe that Lincoln would only accept full Southern surrender and acceptance of Union sovereignty in return for ending the war. At the meeting, Stevens actually raised the possibility of creating an alliance between the Confederacy and the Union against France over France's actions in Mexico at the time. But Lincoln wasn't really interested and pretty quickly raised the issue of sovereignty, raised the issue of the South accepting federal control over the southern states. And on this point, Lincoln was insistent. Lincoln, by contrast, was a bit more shady, a bit more cagey about the details of slavery and its abolition. He raised the possibility that maybe Southern slave owners might receive some sort of compensation for freed slaves if they threw in the towel and rejoined the Union. And he also raised the possibility that emancipation might proceed a little bit slower if only the Confederacy would throw in the towel. But he was insistent that slavery ultimately would end and that the Confederacy had to submit to Union control. He just was willing to be a little bit kind of vague and seem to kind of dangle some things as far as the details of exactly how quickly slavery would be phased out and exactly, you know, whether or not former slave owners would get any compensation. So again, the point I think deserves to be made that Lincoln and Seward were willing to budge a little bit on the details regarding slavery, but were totally unwilling to compromise at all on the South resubmitting to the control by the federal government in D.C. As you would expect, given these various positions, nothing really substantive came out of this meeting. And meanwhile, Sherman was doing everything possible to break what was left of the will to resist on the part of the Southern civilian population. recall, when we last left off William Tecumseh Sherman's forces, they had recently taken the city of Savannah, Georgia, intact for the most part for once. And I'm sure the citizens of Savannah were very grateful that that happened that way, just as I personally am very happy as well, because I have to say, Savannah, Georgia, which is uh, less than three hours drive from where I currently live, is one of my favorite nearby kind of potential weekend trip places to visit. 
I actually honeymooned there almost 15 years ago, and I try to get back for at least an extended weekend visit every few years. And it's just one of my favorite towns to, to go to and walk around in and go to places in. It's just great. So I'm very thankful that that didn't get the same treatment as some of the other cities that Sherman's army sacked. And if you'll recall, by the time Sherman had control of Savannah, he was already planning to march his army from there up through South Carolina, and if anything, to give South Carolina even worse treatment, an even harsher version of total war than what he had given to Georgia. Sherman wrote to Henry Halleck up in D.C., who'd by this point in the war really functionally been reduced to being kind of a middleman administrator who just sort of relayed Grant's orders to the various commanders in the field. Anyway, Sherman wrote this of his operations in Georgia and his planned operations in South Carolina. Quote, I attach more importance to these deep incursions into the enemy's country because this war differs from European wars in this particular We are not only fighting hostile armies, but a hostile people, and must make old and young, rich and poor, feel the hard hand of war, as well as their organized armies. So, yeah, this is targeting the war at civilians. Now, not in the sense of rounding them up uh, before firing squads and having, you know, mass executions or anything like that that you get in the 20th century in many places. But again, by destroying and confiscating people's means of subsistence and their shelter and, you know, their property and destroying towns and all these different things, wrecking infrastructure, of course, what effect is this going to have on people's ability to meet their basic physical needs of food, shelter, clothing, etc.? So it's perhaps not as direct as machine gunning civilians or dropping bombs on their neighborhood, but it's kind of... uh, scaled back somewhat more indirect version of that. Well, on February 1st, Sherman's 60,000 troops headed north out of Savannah. The idea was to march through the Carolinas and destroy some of the only significant, as yet largely untouched, Confederate territory and resources, and ultimately to smash their way up to Virginia so that Sherman's troops could unite with the Army of the Potomac and, if things weren't yet done, finish off Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Ultimately, in marching through South Carolina, Sherman's path of destruction was less wide than the path of destruction he'd cut through Georgia, but it was longer, about 425 miles their route through South Carolina versus less than 300 for the march through Georgia. And also, the destruction was much more intensive, much more complete in South Carolina than it had been in Georgia. And the logistics were more difficult, not just because of the longer distance of the march, but the army would have to cross nine major rivers and a bunch of smaller waterways in what was turning out to be an unusually wet winter. In fact, roads in many places were often underwater, and in some cases, the Union scouts who went ahead of Sherman's main force had to use canoes to do some of their recon. One of the Army's officers later said that in the march through Georgia, relatively few private homes had been destroyed, but that most of the homes in the path of the Army's march through South Carolina were wrecked. Sherman's men spoke and wrote of it as punishment to all South Carolinians, explicitly saying they wanted to inflict retribution on everyone in South Carolina for having been the first state to secede from the Union. And Sherman himself later wrote of it, quote, 
My aim then was to whip the rebels, to humble their pride, to follow them to their inmost recesses, and make them fear and dread us. End quote. It's weird. History has given Sherman's march through Georgia much more notoriety, but his march through South Carolina was actually much more difficult much more destructive, and in Sherman's own estimation, was ten times more important to actually winning the war. On January 31st, 1865, Robert E. Lee was elevated to the rank of General-in-Chief of all Confederate forces, and this was the first time in the war that all Confederate armies were under one military commander. Although, again, like with so many other things, it's too late in the war for it to really amount to much. But at Lee's urging, and also at the urging of Vice President Stevens and a good chunk of the Confederate Congress and Southern public opinion by this point, and it had taken that much to get Jefferson Davis to choke back his personal hatreds and biases. At the urging of all those different individuals and groups, Davis finally put General Joseph Johnston, who'd been briefly retired since being relieved in the Atlanta campaign, back in charge of the Confederate forces that were supposed to be dealing with Sherman. Though at this point, it's probably too late for any military commander, no matter how good he is, to salvage that ridiculous situation. I agree with Harry Stow's assessment of this move, quote, Johnson was certainly an improvement over Hood, now a thoroughly beaten and bitter man with nothing more than a missing arm to show for his bravery. Ultimately, who was in command mattered not at all. There simply were not enough horses or men to withstand Sherman's juggernaut. End quote. So, on February 25th, Johnson assumed command of all Confederate forces in the Carolinas, which really only amounted to at most around 20,000 men the centerpiece of which was what was left of the Army of Tennessee. These forces were divided between defending Augusta, Georgia and Charleston, South Carolina, one of which they believed would probably be the next major town targeted by Sherman. But instead, Sherman marched most of his army through the middle of South Carolina towards the state capital of Columbia. Sherman's forces began occupying the city on... February 17th, and within 24 hours, a good chunk of the city was well along the process of being destroyed. The destruction of Columbia, South Carolina has, ever since, been one of the most controversial actions of Sherman's forces in the entire war, as historian James McPherson explains, quote, The greatest atrocity charged against Sherman— the burning of Columbia also provoked an ongoing controversy about responsibility for the tragedy. Sherman and other Union officers maintained that the fire spread in a high wind from smoldering cotton bales set afire by rebel cavalry as they evacuated the town. Southerners believed that drunken Union soldiers torched the city. Other contemporaries and historians have pointed the finger of guilt at vengeful Union prisoners who had escaped from a nearby prison camp, at local criminals who had escaped from jail, or at Negroes drunk with freedom or liquor or both. The fullest and most dispassionate study of this controversy blames all parties in varying proportions. It also blames Confederate authorities for the disorder which characterized the evacuation of Columbia, leaving thousands of cotton bales in the streets, some of them burning, and huge quantities of liquor undestroyed. 
black and white residents of Columbia distributed some of this liquor by the dipperful to the first troops entering town in an effort to curry their favor. Instead, it turned some of them into inebriated incendiaries. Sherman did not burn Columbia, but some of his men unquestionably helped to do so, and their officers' attempts to restrain them were too little too late. On the other hand, far more Union soldiers, including Sherman, worked through the night to put out the fires than to set them. In any event, the fate of Columbia was not inconsistent with the scorched-earth policy experienced by other parts of South Carolina. End quote. Historian Harry Stout describes the destruction of Columbia in these terms, quote, During the afternoon, soldiers did their best to loot and terrorize citizens, but few reports of physical assaults on white civilians exist. As the wind continued, fires spread throughout the city. Some of the fires occurred accidentally, but others were set deliberately by soldiers moving from house to house, tossing turpentine pots or burning balls of cotton. Freed Union officers from the prisoner of war camp at Columbia were especially bent on revenge. Slaves also joined in the rampage, a relatively small measure of retribution for centuries of violent abuse. The violence grew so extreme that Sherman was forced to order a roundup of drunken soldiers. In all, 307 were arrested, and in the process, two were killed and 30 more wounded. It is true that rapes of white women were rare, and military court-martial records reveal several soldiers executed for rape. But black women did not receive the same mercies. In fact, most of the executions were for the rape of black women. For obvious reasons, Union commentators gave little attention to the stories of black women being raped, but the facts were plain. Widespread black illiteracy meant that few black women would record their experiences. Others were probably too frightened to witness against their triumphant Yankee assailants. Enough accounts survive, however, to confirm the ways in which some white soldiers viewed slave women as legitimate prey of lust. To be sure, Sherman never issued direct orders to destroy and plunder private property, let alone to rape quote-unquote liberated slaves. But any efforts at restraint were ineffectual. In any case, it was well known that if Sherman expected excesses anywhere, it was in Columbia. That expectation amounted to de facto permission in the minds of men. For that, Sherman must take the moral responsibility. End quote. So, there you go. At least some percentage of the Union troops were totally down for raping some of the people they were supposedly fighting to help liberate. How's that for moral complexity? And by the way, when Sherman watched the city of Columbia burn, he supposedly said, quote, they have brought it on themselves, end quote. Harry Stout calls Sherman's thinking guilt by geographical association with South Carolina and the Confederacy's original sin of secession, which basically meant that they all deserved whatever they got in Sherman's thinking. Sherman later wrote, quote, I know that in the beginning I, too, had the old West Point notion that pillage was a capital crime and punished it by shooting, end quote. But then he says that as the war went on, quote, Many of us ceased to quarrel with our men about such minor things and went in to subdue the enemy, leaving minor depredations to be charged up to the account of the rebels who had forced us into this war and who deserved all they got and more, end quote. Specifically about the destruction of Columbia, Sherman wrote after the war, quote, 
though I never ordered it and never wished it, I have never shed many tears over the event, because I believe it hastened what we all fought for, the end of the war. End quote. Many historians in the post-World War II era have actually compared Sherman's operations in South Carolina to the strategic bombing from the air carried out by the British and American Air Forces against the Axis powers in World War II in, in the sense that they're deliberately waging war on an entire society, not just the military of the enemy society, but on their entire society, and trying to psychologically break the entire population. Now, obviously, Sherman's forces were prevented by the technology of the time from carrying out the same level of destruction as what happened in strategic bombing in World War II. I mean, you literally have guys marching around or riding horses, and the best they can do is maybe fire some artillery shells and do some arson, and then do some, you know, good old-fashioned smash and grab. But the idea is that they were basically attempting to do, with the technology they had, the same basic strategic move that British and American bombers were attempting to do against German and Japanese populations in World War II. And it's very interesting, and I think very important in telling, that Sherman's justification for things like the destruction of Columbia, his his way of explaining it and rationalizing it and okaying it are eerily similar to Allied justifications of things like the firebombing of Dresden or the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Namely, the justification is, this helped to speed up the end of the war, so it's completely fine and justified and no one should feel the least bit bad about it, not even the commanders who ordered these things. By the way, Charleston, South Carolina, was taken at about the same time, roughly, as Columbia, but only because its Confederate defenders abandoned it. And it wasn't occupied by Sherman's troops, but by Union forces from what was called the Department of the South, who behaved a lot more nicely than what Sherman's troops would have done if they had been the ones who had taken Charleston. In fact, the Union troops who took Charleston helped fight fires that were started by retreating Confederates, which is why Charleston still also has a fair amount of pre-Civil War architecture intact, although it did take some bombardment before it was occupied. And by the way, I do also love visiting Charleston, but it's a little further drive from me than uh, Savannah, and I don't like it quite as much as Savannah, to be honest, but I still do like Charleston. And Charleston and Savannah are, you know, two of relatively few southern towns that actually have a lot of really old architecture and character still intact. And it's all just because of the contingencies of the war and who took what city and whether or not they destroyed it. By the way, back before Charleston was taken, Henry Halleck had actually cabled Sherman and said, quote, should you capture Charleston, I hope that by some accident the place may be destroyed, and if a little salt should be sown upon its site, it may prevent the growth of future crops of nullification and secession, end quote. So, luckily for Charlestonians that it wasn't actually Sherman who took their town. Sherman's march through South Carolina continued, with only sporadic and very ineffective Confederate resistance, and several weeks after the occupation and destruction of Columbia, Sherman's troops headed towards Goldsboro, North Carolina. 
And when they crossed into North Carolina, they backed off a bit on the total war somewhat, in particular in regard to private homes and buildings, though it was still pretty bad. And many of them seem to have continued to be predatory and abusive in various ways, including sexually, towards the blacks whom they were supposedly there to help liberate. Harry Stout puts it this way, quote, African Americans soon learned that Union soldiers, especially those from the West, were no abolitionists. Indeed, they were outright racists, end quote. After several smaller engagements in early to mid-March, on March 19th, Joseph Johnston decided to try to take a major defensive stand at Bentonville, North Carolina, against a relatively isolated segment of Sherman's army. And this, which would of course become known as the Battle of Bentonville, took place from March 19th through the 21st of 1865. Johnston's troops initially did okay, because they had the element of surprise, but they weren't able to accomplish all that much before massive numbers of Sherman's forces came in for a counterattack, and Johnston ultimately had to retreat. At this point, Sherman probably could have thrown everything that he had against Johnston and possibly wiped out his army, but instead Sherman let them retreat, deciding that as a fairly small and broken force at this point, it would not be worth the loss of life on the Union side to try and finish them off. Furthermore, Sherman's own army was actually fairly exhausted and low on supplies at this point from all their marching and maneuvering, and he knew that a direct frontal attack would be pretty costly even against an army as small and battered as Johnston's was. And the battle had clearly been a defeat for the Confederates. At Bentonville, they had lost more men in both absolute terms and in, of course, relative terms much more. They lost about 2,600 casualties as compared to only about 1,500 for the Union. And Sherman's forces were about three times larger than Johnston's before the battle. So Johnston's army retreated not entirely wiped out or forced to surrender en masse, but clearly its ability to exert any real influence on the course of the war, its ability to do anything really of any significance to resist Sherman, was long since over. On March 4th of 1865, Abraham Lincoln was sworn in for his second term, and he delivered his second inaugural address in Washington, D.C. In the first part of this address, Lincoln sums up the roles of secession and slavery in his mind in causing the war. And now, in contrast to what he said during the early phases of the war, really during the first half of it, he now says that the war was pretty much all about slavery, and he concludes his speech with a request that the Reconstruction policies on the South, which at this point is clearly just a matter of time till they throw in the towel, would be fairly magnanimous and charitable even towards them. Here are some key segments from the speech. 
On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. Side note, perhaps not Lincoln himself, when he was arranging the whole Fort Sumter thing to play out exactly the way it did. But anyway, back to Lincoln. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war. Seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish. Okay, so... If the South got its independence, the nation would perish? What does that even mean? That the United States would have fewer states rather than more states? Why would one think that the Union government would cease to exist if the southern states got their independence? That makes no sense. Back to Lincoln. He says, And the war came. Now, you've got to love that way of putting it. And the war came, like it's just sort of an earthquake that randomly happened. It's nobody's fault. Nobody caused it. The war itself made itself happen, in a way. Notice he doesn't say, people caused the war. He makes no indication that the war was the result of a whole bunch of human choices, some of which were Lincoln's, of course, including some very important ones. No, it just sort of happened, like an earthquake or a tsunami. No one really could have prevented it or seen it coming. And never mind the fact that throughout the 19th century, all of the different slaveholding societies in the Western Hemisphere managed to phase out slavery without massive bloodshed, the only two exceptions, of course, being the United States and Haiti. But anyway, back to the speech, Lincoln says... One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was, somehow, the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. And I pretty much agree with what he's saying there, in the sense that slavery was ultimately the cause of most, if not all, of the sectional discrepancies. But it is interesting how Lincoln really tried to deny or at least downplay that conclusion for pretty much the first half of the war when it would have been politically problematic to do so. And then all of a sudden, it's, oh, it was all about slavery all along. Lincoln continues, The Almighty has his own purposes. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, 
Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, Lincoln is saying, yeah, it was probably the reason there's been so much bloodshed and destruction, both, you know, death among Northerners as well as Southerners, is payback to the nation for having had slavery for so long. So he's invoking this sort of Old Testament God that is a big fan of collective punishment, of smiting entire societies for the crimes of some members of that society. Notice as well how this also shifts blame away from political leaders like Lincoln, whose choices and decisions caused the war to happen to go on for as long as it was going on and to be as destructive as it ended up being. So, you know, it ain't really Lincoln's fault that this turned into such a disastrous clusterfuck. It's God punishing the nation for slavery having existed as long. And of course, there's no context of all the other slave societies which had already, prior to the American Civil War, gotten rid of slavery, in most cases without any giant war. And why is it that God is only smiting the United States in such a huge fashion for having had slavery as long as it did, even though there were other societies that imported more slaves and in whose societies the slaves were treated worse? You know, if Lincoln is correct that the Civil War was God's punishment for America having slavery, then why didn't God start smiting nations that had slavery for thousands of years? Why did he suddenly wait till the 19th century to start doing it? Furthermore, when in the 19th century various societies started getting rid of slavery, why was it only the United States and Haiti which God chose to smite with massive violence? Why didn't God smite the living hell out of Brazil, considering Brazil was the number one destination for slaves shipped across the Atlantic from Africa, and that slaves in Brazil generally faced much poorer conditions and had much lower life expectancy than slaves in North America? Why were they somehow able to phase out slavery without having a massive, destructive war? But, of course, political speeches are not designed to be critically analyzed— Because as soon as you start critically and logically deconstructing political speeches, you realize that they're like, you know, 80 to 90% bullshit in most cases. They're not designed to appeal to the rational mind. They're not designed to appeal to the critical thinker. They're designed to appeal to the emotions, to kind of fly in under the radar of your potential critical thinking abilities to bypass that, and to elicit some sort of emotional response from you. Lincoln concludes his second inaugural address with the following, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. 
Historian Harry Stout says of this speech, quote, Clearly the second inaugural stands with the Gettysburg Address as America's greatest sermons, but it was also his sermon to the world. Everywhere, Lincoln's mandated universality set him apart from other national leaders promoting their nationalism as an end in itself. With all nations. The last three words of this great speech were the greatest, for they incarnated an enduring civil religion of America, the Redeemer Nation. At the same time, they ordained its prophet, soon to become its martyred messiah. End quote. And there's a lot of reasons why Lincoln's second inaugural is much more quoted than his first, and why his second inaugural, along with the Gettysburg Address, are some of the most quoted and hallowed speeches in American civil religion. And it's in part because they are very eloquent and effective at emotional manipulation, even though both speeches can easily be taken apart from a rational standpoint, but they're very effective as pieces of rhetoric. And in addition, they continue to serve the purposes of much of the mainstream establishment ever since, right on up through the present, the sort of big government neoconish right, and the corporatist warmongering left. Think how often similar sentiments such as these, filtering on down through people like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, and in their own awkward rhetorical ways, even people like Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and George W. Bush, how they use these sorts of ideas of the exceptional nation upon whom the fate of the entire world depends to justify all sorts of ridiculous wars that any sort of a rational person would have to conclude were wars of choice that had nothing to do with preserving the nation or saving the world or any of this. Now, it is true that Lincoln adopted a relatively magnanimous plan, as alluded to by his phrase with malice toward none and charity for all, although there wasn't that much charity, honestly, in terms of like economic rebuilding for the South on offer. But under Lincoln's plan, all that the conquered southern states would have to do in order to be considered back in the Union in good standing— was to have 10% of their 1860 voting population form a new state government that swore to submit to the U.S. Constitution and which also abolished slavery. Now, many Northerners actually thought this was too lenient and wanted to punish the South more and make it jump through more hoops in order to be fully co-equal as states back in the Union and so on. But that was Lincoln's plan in the latter months of his life. Meanwhile, the Army of Northern Virginia was on its last legs. By the time the winter of 1864-5 ended, Robert E. Lee's army was still under siege by Grant's Army of the Potomac at Petersburg, Virginia, and Lee's army was in bad shape. Union forces had seized all but one of the railroads leading in and out of the city, and the winter had been a hard, cold one, and Lee's army was rapidly shrinking 
due to illness, but even more so to desertion, something that hadn't been a huge problem in Lee's army previously. In general, he had had relatively good morale among many of his men, even during hard times. But at this point, a lot of them had just had it and they could see the writing on the wall. No one wants to be one of the last guys to die for a cause that's doomed to end in failure anyway, or at least very few people other than the occasional crazy person that has, you know, Alamo fantasies or whatever. Over the first several months of 1865, Lee's army shrank from around 55,000 at the start of the period to probably less than 35,000. The Army of the Potomac, meanwhile, was, as always, much, much better supplied and was numerically at its peak with well over 100,000 men in the field. Sherman was planning to eventually work his way up through North Carolina to join with Grant's army in Virginia if necessary, but Grant was trying his best, if possible, to finish off things before that was necessary, which probably Sherman wouldn't have been able to get all the way up to Virginia until late April at the earliest. Lee finally decided in March that his army's best bet for survival was to try to escape from Petersburg and maybe meet up with what was left of Johnston's army to combine forces. He concluded, quite rightly I think, that everything was indicating that his army would be completely surrounded and cut off and eventually have no choice but to surrender in mass if they didn't try something quick. Now, the evacuation of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia from Petersburg would basically mean giving up Richmond, the Confederate capital, to the Union. But Lee decided that the more important thing was to try to keep his army intact. Lee's escape plan actually began very cleverly. On the night of March 24th through 5th, he sent some phony Confederate deserters over to Fort Stedman, which was a Union outpost east of Petersburg, and these phony deserters were able to kind of worm their way in and get the drop on Union troops there, and initially were very successful, taking the fort and a fairly big stretch of Union trenches with a surprise attack. But a Union counterattack quickly came and succeeded and turned the whole thing into a disaster for the Confederates, who ended up losing 5,000 casualties in the fighting to only 2,000 for the Union. Grant sought to relentlessly capitalize on this success, and Lee's army was forced to try to fight its way out of Petersburg. Two divisions under George Pickett were badly whipped by a mixture of infantry and dismounted cavalry led by Philip Sheridan, many of whom were armed with the relatively new repeating rifles. And what was left of Pickett's troops ended up surrendering. On April 2nd, Grant ordered a massive attack to follow up on this, and it was another disaster for Lee's army as Union forces broke through Confederate lines in multiple places and also seized the very last railroad line out of Petersburg. Lee, at this point, ordered a retreat that nearly turned into a complete rout. And of course, as Lee understood, Richmond soon fell. Confederate President Jefferson Davis was actually attending services at St. Paul's Church in Richmond when a messenger arrived, handing him a telegram from Lee, a telegram that basically said that Richmond had to be abandoned. Davis left without saying anything to anyone, but the rest of the people in the church pretty easily figured out what the message had probably said, and panic quickly spread throughout Richmond as residents looked to flee any way they could. 
Confederate government leaders took the few trains out, taking as much as they could with them of the Confederacy's gold and its archives, and tried to burn anything of potential military value that was left in the city on their way out. For those who remained in the city, it quickly turned into destructive, panicked chaos. Mob violence and pillaging and fires grew into the night until Union troops showed up to try to restore order and fight the fires in contrast to how Union troops had behaved in Columbia. And interestingly, the first Union troops who entered the city to do this were the 25th Corps, which was a black corps. And it was actually their white commander who accepted the surrender of Richmond from its mayor on April 2nd. Harry Stout writes of the troops who occupied Richmond, quote, This Union army would show mercy instead of vengeance, and Richmond would be spared the drunken destruction of Columbia. In West Point terms, this was the way a defenseless city in flames should have been treated. End quote. On April 3rd, Abraham Lincoln himself came to visit Richmond and see General Grant as Lee's army continued to be battered to bits. Lincoln arrived by river and toured the city with his only escort being a detail of 10 Union sailors, but no one attacked him or tried to assassinate him or anything like that. Instead, the black residents of Richmond swarmed him, cheering him as a liberator and even as a messiah. When one black man knelt before Lincoln, the president said, quote, Don't kneel to me. That is not right. You must kneel to God only and thank him for the liberty you will enjoy hereafter. End quote. Davis and other Confederate leaders who'd escaped the city initially regrouped in Danville, Virginia, but then Union forces were closing in fast and they had to flee again. At this point, Davis advocated for Southerners to adopt guerrilla warfare methods to continue to resist the Union, but as with so many other things pulled out in the last few months of the war, it was basically just too late. You know, perhaps a larger adoption of irregular warfare strategy and tactics earlier in the war might have made a difference to the outcome. But since by this point, not only was the Confederate government and regular Confederate military falling apart, but morale amongst most Southern civilians had been completely broken. Davis sent a message to the Southern people which read as follows, quote, Relieved from the necessity of guarding cities and particular points, important but not vital to our defense, with our army free to move from point to point and strike in detail detachments and garrisons of the enemy, operating in the interior of our own country, where supplies are more accessible and where the foe will be far removed from his own base and cut off from all succor in case of reverse." Nothing is now needed to render our triumph certain, but the exhibition of our own unquenchable resolve. Let us but will it, and we are free. End quote. And this statement, to me, seems to reveal that Jefferson Davis actually did have some level of understanding of the potential effectiveness of irregular warfare, and yet it begs the question why not try to have fought the entire war in this fashion? Why put everything into conventional military operations, and then only when it's pretty much a done deal and everything is broken, start to lean on unconventional ideas of warfare? Again, as with the measures to offer blacks their freedom in return for military service to the Confederacy, and the idea of maybe abolishing slavery in the South in order to bring about European support, it was just 
brought out and rolled out far, far too late to matter. The morale and the will of the Southern population to resist had just been broken by all the death and destruction at this point. And Robert E. Lee and some other Confederate politicians and a lot of Confederate generals were really cognizant of this fact, and they decided not to listen to Davis's call. Which brings us towards Appomattox. Over the next few days after the fall of Richmond, Lee continued to retreat with what was left of his battered and starving remnant of an army, with Grant's forces in hot pursuit. Grant sent messengers to Lee trying to get him to open negotiations for surrender, but Lee refused. Lee managed to get his army to Amelia Courthouse, a bit over 30 miles west of Richmond, where he expected he would find a trainload of food for his men, but instead, due to a supply snafu, they found a trainload of ammunition, which they couldn't even carry at this point, and obviously which they could not eat. They continued to try to retreat, initially to regroup with the political leaders at Danville, but the Union troops got there first, which is why the political leaders had to flee from Danville, and Union forces relentlessly pursued and attacked Lee's forces the whole time. At Sailor's Creek on April 6th, a quarter of what remained of Lee's army was cut off and ultimately forced to surrender. And among those who surrendered at Sailor's Creek were Confederate Generals Richard Ewell and George Washington Custis Lee, the latter, of course, being Robert E. Lee's eldest son. On April 7th, Lee began for the first time to respond to some of Grant's messages, trying to get a sense of what surrender terms might be on offer, but initially nothing came of the negotiations. On the morning of April 9th, which was Palm Sunday, Lee attempted to make a breakout attack near Appomattox Courthouse. He initially succeeded against a relatively small force of Union cavalry, and the men cleared a ridge, and from there they saw two entire corps of Union troops coming for them, as two other corps approached from the other direction. Historian James McPherson describes the situation in which Lee found himself, quote, Almost surrounded, outnumbered by five or six to one in effective troops, Lee faced up to the inevitable. One of his subordinates suggested an alternative to surrender. The men would take to the woods and become guerrillas. No, said Lee, who did not want all of Virginia devastated as the Shenandoah Valley had been. End quote. Lee responded that doing so, quote, would bring on a state of affairs it would take the country years to recover from, end quote. And he then said, quote, there is nothing left to do but for me to go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. End quote. When Lee sent his message indicating that he would in fact surrender, Grant was dealing with a massive headache, but supposedly when he received the message that Lee was about to surrender, the headache went away right away. The site that was chosen for the surrender to take place was the home of a Virginia farmer and grocer named Wilmer McLean. Now, some of you who've read a few books or even who've watched the Ken Burns PBS Civil War series may recall the significance here of that name. You may also recall the name Wilmer McLean if you have a good memory and you've listened to the very first DHP episode in this series, which was episode 131, Opening Gambits, The Not-So-Civil War Part 1, which seems so long ago. And it was a while ago, it was over a year and a half ago from when I'm recording this episode now, but anyway, the significance of Wilmer McLean was 
that in the first significant battle of the war, which was, of course, Manassas or Bull Run in 1861, some of the fighting took place in and around the property that McLean owned and lived on at that time. And in fact, the Confederate commanders of the battle had even occupied McLean's house as their headquarters, and a Union shell had hit McLean's dining room during the battle. After the battle, wanting to get the hell away from the fighting, McLean had moved to another part of Virginia, which just happened to be near Appomattox Courthouse. So, McLean's residence in 1861 had hosted the first real battle of the war, and his residence in 1865, to which he'd moved in 1863 and which was many miles away from his old Manassas home, hosted what amounted to, for practical purposes, the end of the war, because even though other Confederate forces surrendered after Lee's army, the fact was that pretty much everyone understood that Lee's surrender signaled the end of the war. Supposedly, McLean quipped something like, The war began in my front yard and ended in my parlor. And the funny part was, it wasn't even the same house. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's like Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both dying on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence signing. It's just like such a ridiculous coincidence that if you made it up, people would immediately see it was BS. But it's actually true in this case. James McPherson describes the scene of the surrender in the following terms, quote, the vanquished commander, six feet tall and erect in bearing, arrived in full-dress uniform with sash and jeweled sword. The victor, five feet eight with stooped shoulders, arrived in his usual private's blouse with mud-spattered trousers tucked into muddy boots, because his headquarters wagon had fallen behind in the race to cut off the enemy. There in McLean's parlor, the son of an Ohio tanner dictated surrender terms to the scion of a first family of Virginia. The terms were generous. Officers and men could go home not to be disturbed by U.S. authority so long as they observe their paroles and the laws in force where they may reside. This clause had great significance. Serving as a model for the subsequent surrender of other Confederate armies, it guaranteed Southern soldiers immunity from prosecution for treason. End quote. Grant, when asked by Lee, described his terms as follows, quote, that your army should lay down their arms and not take them up again during the continuance of the war unless duly and properly exchanged, End quote. So basically, the idea was the men were supposed to be like POWs who had not been exchanged but were paroled, were allowed to go home, but as long as the war continued, were not supposed to rejoin the fight. Lee was also able to get Grant to grant, pardon the pun, him some other concessions, basically that men who owned their own horses, which was the practice for officers and cavalrymen and even artillerymen in the Confederate Army, could keep those horses, and that men who had their own sidearms could retain those as well. Grant also offered Lee's men three days' worth of rations, which Lee was happy to accept and which his near-starving troops were no doubt happy to get as well. When the two generals parted ways, Grant later recalled in his memoirs, quote, I felt sad and depressed at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, end quote. 
Lee returned to his men to explain the terms to them, and he gave brief remarks in which he tried to discourage them from any thoughts of trying to continue the war through guerrilla methods. Quote, I have done for you all that it was in my power to do. You have done all your duty. Leave the result to God. Go to your homes and resume your occupations. Obey the laws and become as good citizens as you were soldiers. End quote. When Grant's troops began loudly celebrating the surrender, Grant told them to stop and said, quote, The war is over. The rebels are our countrymen again, and the best sign of rejoicing after the victory will be to abstain from all demonstrations. End quote. After the meeting in McLean's farmhouse, by the way, Union soldiers began carrying off furniture and other items from his house as souvenirs of the surrender. And while they did actually pay McLean a reasonable amount of money for this, it wasn't exactly voluntary on McLean's part. On April 10th, Robert E. Lee issued his final orders as Confederate commander, which were General Orders Number 9, which have since become known as Lee's Farewell Address, in which he again urged Confederate soldiers to stop the fight and go home, and told them they'd done their duty well and it was over. Three days later, the formal surrender ceremony for the Army of Northern Virginia took place. Leading the Union contingent of the Army of the Potomac at the ceremony was Joshua Chamberlain of Maine, the hero of Little Round Top at the Battle of Gettysburg. The Confederate contingent was led by one of Lee's hardest-fighting subordinate commanders, John B. Gordon, the guy who had taken over Stonewall Jackson's corps after Jackson's death and who'd saved the Confederates in many battles with sort of nick-of-time counterattacks and things like that. Chamberlain and his men offered the surrendering Confederates salutes and gestures of honor, which surprised the Confederates, but they then returned the gestures as well. Hearing the news of Lee's surrender, major celebrations broke out up in Washington, D.C., and Lincoln, for his part, did his best to facilitate the surrender of the rest of the Confederate government and military forces, while still at the same time refusing in any way to recognize that it had really been a government at all. On April 11th, he gave a speech in which he said, quote, There is no authorized organ for us to treat with. We must simply begin with and mold from disorganized and discordant elements. End quote. As most people with any familiarity with American history probably know, with the war mostly wrapped up, Abraham Lincoln decided to go to Ford's Theater to see a play and relax, 
where he would be seeing the play Our American Cousin. While he was watching the play in his box seat, an actor and Confederate partisan named John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln in the head with a derringer, stabbed an army major who was also in the box when the major tried to grab him, and then jumped from the box to the stage where he yelled Six Emperor Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants, which is supposed to be what Brutus said when he helped assassinate Julius Caesar and is also Virginia's state motto and is on its state seal. Booth was not a lone nut, he had conspired with several others, and the plan was to simultaneously kill Lincoln as well as Vice President Andrew Johnson and Secretary of State William Seward, who were respectively second and third in line to take over upon Lincoln's death, you know, the idea being to cause major disruption in the U.S. government. But Booth was the only successful assassin out of this conspiracy. The guy who was supposed to kill Johnson lost his nerve and got drunk instead, and the guy who went after Seward did stab him and wounded him, but did not end up killing him. Booth's leg was injured in his escape from Ford's theater. Some sources say it was in his jump from the president's box onto the stage, others that it happened later, but either way, he did end up escaping, but was injured. The assassination happened on April 14th, which was Good Friday, again for our national Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, and Booth succeeded for almost two weeks to evade authorities, but he was ultimately found and shot and killed by Union soldiers in Port Royal, Virginia on April 26th. In the meantime, a whole bunch of supposed conspirators, some actual and some merely alleged, were rounded up by the U.S. government, and some were people who who seemed to have had only slight contact with Booth, either shortly before or after the assassination, but eventually all of those rounded up were released except for eight people who were put on trial in front of a military tribunal. All of those eight were found guilty. Four were sentenced to death and hanged, three received life imprisonment, and one received a shorter prison sentence. Now, of those who were executed, Mary Surratt was and always has been the most controversial, in part because she was the first female ever executed by the U.S. government, and in part because there have always been some questions about how much she really may have been involved in this whole thing. The 2010 film The Conspirator, which I believe was directed by Robert Redford, if memory serves, focuses on this trial. Now, getting back to Lincoln, he was pronounced dead in the morning on April 15th, and Andrew Johnson was sworn in as president a few hours after that. One Union soldier wrote to his brother upon hearing of Lincoln's death, quote, I believe the rebels have lost their best friend, end quote, referring to how lenient Lincoln was intending to be to the South once they'd surrendered. Lincoln's death and funeral would be a massive orgy of pageantry for the United States' civil religion, and Lincoln would truly become the messiah of this faith. And as his coffin was shipped from D.C. back to Illinois to be buried, a good chunk of the northern part of the country got to revel in this pageantry and religiosity as well. Harry Stout, of course, has a lot of perceptive insight into how this was done by the northern clergy, press, politicians, and public, and continued to be done for decades thereafter, primarily by Republican politicians who wanted to capitalize on all this for their own electoral success. Stout writes, quote, 
Besides seeking vengeance, northern preachers, writers, and statesmen immediately set out to complete Lincoln's incarnation as the Messiah of the reunited republic, end quote. Stout then goes on to quote a sermon from a Presbyterian minister from New York after Lincoln's death, which said the following, quote, Our beloved chief magistrate was removed at the height of his fame, his reputation unsullied, the equal of Washington, and beyond Washington, a martyr to the cause of constitutional liberty. The name of Abraham Lincoln has entered into history, almost the only one without a spot. The man dies, but the cause lives. Even Jesus died, but his cause survives and prevails, and ours, so far as it is consistent with his, can never be overthrown. Stout then goes on to quote the sermon of a Universalist pastor in the North who would have disagreed with the Presbyterian on almost all questions of theology, but who sounds remarkably similar when it comes to the civil religion. Quote, The haters of liberty crucified the son of Mary, but he rose to life again, and his resurrection is celebrated by the Christian church throughout the world. By his death, he acquired a power and influence which he could never have attained in life. So shall it be with our lamented dead president. Power shall be born of his ashes, even as a corn of wheat dying brings forth a hundredfold." In their praising of Lincoln, some northern commentators said that his only shortcoming may have been that he was too Christ-like in terms of how merciful he was, and that, as Harry Stout puts it, quote, some went so far as to suggest that in God's providence, Lincoln had been taken up prematurely because he would not have been equal to the harsh penalties that divine justice required of the beaten South, but instead would have been too lenient. End quote. As if the guy who sicked Sherman on Georgia and South Carolina would have been unable to inflict punishment if he so desired. And in addition, many Northern commentators explicitly connected the Messiah-like qualities of Lincoln with a world-redeeming mission for the United States government. And historian David Blight refers to this as millennial nationalism and writes that in this belief system, quote, the United States was seen as God's redemptive instrument in history and with providential appointments went burdens of world significance, end quote. So it all goes together. This idea of America carrying the fate of the world on its shoulders, and thus having the duty, ultimately, in the 20th century, to try and take over as much of the world as possible. Other Confederate forces still in the field surrendered within months of Lee's surrender at Appomattox. On April 12th, Mobile, Alabama, which was the last significant Confederate city not yet in Union hands, surrendered to Union occupation. And at a meeting that day in North Carolina with his cabinet and a couple remaining generals, including Joseph Johnston, Jefferson Davis was still pushing this idea of switching to guerrilla warfare. But his generals actually refused to go along with it, and as a result, it fizzled out. 
Johnston in particular was adamant that he believed the Southern people had simply had it with the war and that surrender was the only viable move at this point. Historian Mark Grimsley describes Johnston's stand as follows, quote, Johnston thus did what no American commander has ever done before or since. He exercised the full weight of his military position to tell his government how to conclude a war. End quote. On April 20th, Lee actually wrote to Jefferson Davis, also urging him not to turn to guerrilla warfare, saying, quote, A partisan war may be continued and hostilities protracted, causing individual suffering and devastation of the country, but I see no prospect by that means of achieving a separate independence. To save the useless effusion of blood, I would recommend measures be taken for the suspension of hostilities and the restoration of peace. End quote. When he heard of Lee's surrender up in Virginia, Joseph Johnston began negotiations to surrender his Confederate forces to William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman initially drafted a memorandum that was going to serve as the basis for the surrender of all remaining Confederate forces, and really even set the bar for some Reconstruction policies. At least that was Sherman's intention. What he proposed was basically that if Johnston's men and other Confederate forces submitted to U.S. authority and their state and local officials swore oaths of allegiance to the United States as well, then former Confederates would in most cases just get outright amnesty, and they and their state and local governments would be immediately legit again in the eyes of federal authorities. Now, these terms were very generous. They went far beyond what Grant had offered to Lee. And these were, in Sherman's view, simply implementing what Lincoln had been talking about near the end of his life. However, Sherman, as a commanding general in the field, had gone far beyond his authority in offering all of this. And in a rare instance in which they would agree on something, both President Andrew Johnson and the Republicans in Congress refused to allow Sherman to actually offer this. And they basically got Grant to tell Sherman that he had to get Johnston to accept unconditional surrender. So, on April 26, 1865, Johnston surrendered, and he was surrendering not just his main force, which was what was left of the Army of Tennessee, but technically all remaining Confederate forces in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, which, when you put it all together, actually ends up being the single largest Confederate surrender of the war, almost 90,000 men. Jefferson Davis, who'd of course pretty much always hated Johnston, accused him of being a traitor for actually doing this surrender. Though Sherman wasn't allowed to grant as much as he'd initially been about to grant, Johnston's men still received fairly generous terms from Sherman once they surrendered, pretty much the same terms as what Grant had given to Lee's army. And Sherman also gave Johnston's men significant amounts of food and even some horses and mules so that they could go home and plant crops. Johnson himself was evidently touched by the generosity of Sherman's treatment of his men once they'd surrendered. Now, I want to mention a little bit about a Confederate general who was very high-ranking, but who relatively few people have heard of who are not complete Civil War buffs, and that is General Edmund Kirby Smith, who lived from 1824 to 1893. He's probably the highest-ranking Confederate general you've never heard of. He was born in St. Augustine, Florida, where I currently reside, 
two parents who had moved down to Florida from Connecticut, and he attended West Point and served as a lieutenant in the Mexican War and then in various other military capacities, including teaching at West Point and getting wounded while fighting Indians in Texas in 1859. By the start of the Civil War, he had risen to the rank of major in the U.S. Army, and in fact, when Texas seceded, which was where he was at the time, he was in command of a Union outpost there, and he refused to turn it over to Texas local forces, and told them that he'd even be willing to fight to hold on to this United States facility. But... Not long after that, less than one week before the firing on Fort Sumter, he ended up resigning his commission in the U.S. Army to go with his home state of Florida, which had also seceded. By the summer of 1861, Kirby Smith had risen to the rank of Brigadier General in the Confederate Army and commanded one of the brigades at Bull Run. In 1862, he served with distinction in the Tennessee Theater of the War, and in 1863, he was transferred to what was known as the Trans-Mississippi Department, which consisted of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. And that was his command for the remainder of the war, but he was never able to participate in real large-scale effective actions against Union forces in that theater, because he never had more than 30,000 men at any one time under his command, and those that he did have were spread out over such a huge area that it made it difficult to really do much in the way of, you know, major battles. Plus, the Union had by that point in the war taken over the Mississippi River watershed region, and that really kind of cut Kirby Smith off. In 1864, he was promoted to the rank of full general, as it was known, and he was only one of seven to ever hold that rank in the Confederate Army. His command was officially the last Confederate Army to surrender, and did not formally do so until June of 1865. And after doing that, he was worried that he might be imprisoned and prosecuted, so he fled through Mexico to Cuba but then returned to the U.S. in November of 1865 to take a loyalty oath in Virginia when, you know, the offers were made basically that even high-level Confederate people could get amnesty by swearing an oath and all that kind of stuff. An interesting guy. You just don't hear much about him because he spent the second half of the war in a relatively remote command where his ability to do large-scale operations was very limited. But after the war, he was mostly involved in education in Tennessee and Kentucky and served as a teacher and for a while as the president of the University of Nashville. And along with an antebellum man named Dr. John Gorey, who had invented an early form of air conditioning and refrigeration in Florida all the way back before the Civil War, Edmund Kirby Smith was one of the two Floridians in the National Statuary Hall in Washington, D.C. for many decades. Each state is allowed to have two statues of people who kind of, you know, exemplify things the state's proud of or whatever. So it was Dr. Gorey who invented an early version of air conditioning and Edmund Kirby Smith. But very recently, what with all the taken down Robert E. Lee statues hooplas going on, after being there for almost a century, Edmund Kirby Smith's statue came under fire. And fairly recently, Governor Rick Scott of Florida signed legislation to remove the statue of Edmund Kirby Smith, which will now, last I heard, be going to a historical society in Lake County, Florida. And meanwhile, his spot in the National Statuary Hall is going to be taken by Mary McLeod Bethune, who was an African-American educator and civil rights activist, although Dr. Gorey will remain 
It's still okay to have invented air conditioning. Now, what ended up happening to Jefferson Davis? Well, supposedly, he was actually dismayed when he'd heard that Lincoln had been killed, in part because he was one of those people who believed that Lincoln would have been relatively lenient on the South after its surrender. But even though Davis was unhappy about Lincoln's death, he was accused of having had something to do with it. And as far as I know, there's no evidence at all to back up that claim. But nonetheless, at the time, on that basis, Andrew Johnson offered a $100,000 reward for the capture of Jefferson Davis. On May 5th, Davis held the last meeting of the Confederate cabinet in Georgia, in which he officially dissolved the government. And five days later, he was captured and was held in Fort Monroe in Virginia for two years under the accusation of treason. But he was never tried. And after two years, he was let out. And he would go on to live until 1889. Meanwhile, the 13th Amendment to officially abolish slavery throughout all American states and territories was in the final stages of ratification and was ratified by enough states on December 6th, 1865. The amendment reads as follows, quote, Section 1. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. End quote. Isn't that interesting? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude unless you're convicted of a crime. And of course, there is no sense that military conscription might be considered involuntary servitude or anything like that. So it abolishes the kind of old school chattel slavery, but leaves open the possibility for some other forms of involuntary servitude for certain people in certain circumstances. Now, some sporadic and largely irregular fighting existed in a few areas, mostly remote of the southern United States. But by 1866, it was pretty well done, and President Andrew Johnson issued essentially a proclamation of mission accomplished on August 20th, 1866, the formal title of which was, quote, Proclamation declaring that peace, order, tranquility, and civil authority now exists in and throughout the whole of the United States of America, end quote. At that point, the very last real resistance, which had been in Texas, was finally over. Now, in closing out this episode, I just want to say a very brief word on Reconstruction, and I'm not going to get too much into it here or in the rest of this series, in part because it's a period of slightly over a decade after the Civil War, and when you zoom in on it, it's actually rather complex, so much so that it could potentially be its own standalone series, and maybe I'll get into it someday in the future, who knows, but for right now, I'm... Not going to get into the details too heavily, and in part because I already covered some of the major aspects of it in the last episode in my History of American Slavery series, which I'll put a link to in the show notes for this episode if you haven't listened to that yet. And I also am going to not get heavily into it here, in part because, frankly, at this point, I'm kind of burnt out for now on all things related to the overall topic and era of the American Civil War. So, you know, sorry, but I am human, and the thought of doing one or more likely a bunch of major episodes in the near future, at least, on Reconstruction is just not that appealing to me at the moment. But 
Suffice it to say, in regard to Reconstruction, that virtually everyone, to one degree or another, dropped the ball regarding handling this. And so it really didn't work out well for most of the involved parties. And as some historians have pointed out, there was nothing resembling a Marshall Plan or other massive Reconstruction thing to try to revive the Southern economy. And for a variety of reasons, some of them having to do with the destruction of the war itself, some of it having to do with U.S. trade policy in the late 19th and early 20th century, and some of it, admittedly, you know, the South's own fault, certain cultural problems and whatever, the South would lag way, way behind the rest of the United States in wealth and other positive social indicators for many generations after the war. And in fact, many areas wouldn't even begin to catch up until after World War II. And obviously some areas, many areas even of the South, still lag way behind the rest of the country on a lot of positive indicators. And for example, a lot of the poorest states and localities in America to this day are in the South. The slaves, of course, were freed, and that's great, but very quickly they faced both legal and extra-legal attacks that tried to curtail their freedoms and rights as much as possible. And of course, as many of you probably know, in the face of the overwhelming Yankee Leviathan, Southern resistance and resentment would shift more towards terrorism and things like that in the form of organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and other kind of secretive vigilante-slash-terrorist groups who tended to go after easy targets, even though those easy targets may not really be the root cause of their problem. So, for example, there's a tendency to target above all the former slaves, as they were very vulnerable, and many Southerners were more than happy to heap blame on them for all of their problems. The South would remain under Union military occupation to varying degrees in different locales until 1877, when a political compromise having to do with settling the 1876 presidential election would result in the removal of those Union troops, and that, of course, inaugurated the real kind of heyday golden age of Jim Crow legislation and overall reduction of what gains in terms of rights that blacks had made during Reconstruction, which had at least been somewhat protected by Union troops prior to 1877. So, the ball was dropped to a large extent. Not nearly enough resources were sent to the South to help it recover economically from the war. Not nearly enough resources and thought were devoted to the issue of, you've just set a few million slaves free, but what are they supposed to do? Who's going to protect them from potentially being attacked, who's going to help a population who had been for generations deliberately kept from things like acquiring property and education and so on. How are they going to get started in life and not end up in a very subservient, potentially victim-type situation? And while some former slaves did pretty well for themselves, many of course did not. And nobody really succeeded in bringing about much in the way of reconciliation between different groups in the South, and obviously a lot of that continues to this day. It varies from place to place, but in a lot of parts of the South to this day, it feels like the Civil War was, you know, recently. All of which brings us nearly to the end of this series, after more than a year and a half. If you've been catching these episodes as they've been coming out this whole time, thank you for your patience and thanks for staying with me. 
it ended up being more work and taking, you know, longer time between episodes and producing bigger episodes than I ever expected when I first started this whole series. It truly has been a white whale, and I feel like I'm almost finishing it off. And now, I am still planning, as I said, on doing one more regular episode for this series, in which I'm going to kind of zoom the lens out and think about things like the various costs of this war, the results and legacies, why it turned out the way it did, the meaning of this war, different interpretations that different people have had about it over the 150 plus years since it ended, and all those sorts of things. And I think it'll be very, very interesting. I plan on getting into a lot of different aspects and angles of those things. So it's probably going to be a pretty big episode, but I'm hoping to be able to do it at least in the next few weeks or so. Also, for the relatively near future, not sure if it'll be made before or after the last regular Civil War episode, but I'm thinking probably before, I am still working on a Patreon bonus episode talking about the weaponry, tactics, snipers, all those sorts of things in regard to this war. So it's yet another thing to look forward to if you're a regular supporter of the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon. But for now, this is the end of this particular episode. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Elvis Pretzel, Gary, Michael, Joseph, Andres, Robert, Joshua, Kendall, Drake, Scott, Jeff, Brian, Barry, Grant, Greg, Matt, James, Bill, Curtis, and Andrew. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. And for ordering items for me off of my DHP Amazon wish list, thanks go to Brittany for getting me the sinews of power, War Money in the English State, 1688 to 1783 by John Brewer, which is a very interesting book that I read many years ago in graduate school and wanted to get my hands on a copy of my own uh, to read again and to use for possible future show usage. And to Steve for getting me a very interesting book called True Crime in the Civil War, Cases of Murder, Treason, Counterfeiting, Massacre, Plunder, and Abuse by Tobin Book. Sounds very interesting. Unfortunately, too late to be integrated into my basic not-so-Civil War series, but nonetheless possible stuff for future episodes. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org slash donate 
And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website. And if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission and that helps me keep the show going. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase. And please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer. That's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.